Hi there, and welcome to the first episode of Cedar's new Policy Snacks podcast, a series of bite-sized explainers about today's big policy issues and ideas. I'm Jared Ball, Chief Economist at Cedar, and today we'll be taking a closer look at Australia's looming fiscal cliff and what can be done to avoid going over it. And I'm joined by our senior economist, Melissa Wilson. Thanks for coming on the pod, Melissa. Thanks for having me, Jared. Great to be here. So let's get right into it. Um, we are hearing a lot about this idea of a fiscal cliff, um, especially now in the lead up to the withdrawal of the JobKeeper wage subsidy and, and the JobSeeker supplement. But, but what is this um, fiscal cliff and where did the term even come from? Yeah, so when we're talking about a fiscal cliff, what people mean is a sudden large withdrawal of fiscal support, and that's through government spending cuts, uh, and or tax increases at the same time. And the term fiscal cliff really came to prominence in the US in 2012. At that time, the US was facing a, the combined effect of scheduled government spending cuts plus a very large increase in taxes looming ahead. And in the end, at that time, the Senate finally came to an agreement to avoid the cliff at the 11th hour, but it was looking quite tense there for a while. And more recently in the Australian context, the term fiscal cliff has been used to describe the upcoming removal of large amounts of government economic support, in particular the JobKeeper and JobSeeker supplement, uh, which are both scheduled to finish at the end of March. And both of these policies have really played an important role in the recovery so far, haven't they, Jared? Well, yes, definitely. And obviously, especially during the height of the lockdowns and the sort of state border closures that we saw last year, I guess part of the reason that we know that they've worked well is that the overall number of people accessing these policies has declined significantly. So taking JobKeeper, for example, uh, there's now over 1.5 million employees who collected it between October and December last year compared to 3.6 million between April and September last year. And more recently, in terms of job seeker and youth allowance recipients, we've seen a 7% drop between the end of December and the end of uh, January. Uh, we've also seen a large number of people who had a job who, but who were working zero hours when the pandemic struck are now back working at least some hours again. And this is good news because this really is the cohort that's most vulnerable to job losses when JobKeeper ends. So overall, fewer people seem to be relying on these income supports uh, based on better health outcomes that we've seen here in Australia, uh, which has allowed the lifting of restrictions and obviously a better economic outlook than we imagined last year. So when I look at that current situation, um, I can really understand the argument that these were always intended to be temporary support measures and it's natural that we'll start to see some winding back as conditions improve. Um, I think we can also take some comfort from the fact that these policies have already started to be wound back. So we saw a big step down in fiscal support in September when the rates for JobKeeper and JobSeeker supplement were reduced uh, and some conditions were tightened. And the economy seems to have managed that transition quite well. Uh, and the next step down at the end of March will actually be smaller. Now, I say all that, but as is always the case in economics, there's another side to this story uh, as well. So, Melissa, why don't you tell me why I should be more worried about this looming fiscal cliff in March? Thanks, Jared. Yeah, so definitely agree that the short-term outlook is looking much better and the recovery is very much underway. But it's also important, I think, 
to consider the role of policy in supporting the longer-term recovery. We're definitely not out of the woods yet with the pandemic, and we know that some of the effects will linger for, for some time to come. While the labour market is recovering, and the latest RBA forecast suggests that the unemployment rate has already peaked, hopefully, uh, the recovery still really does have a long way to go. If we look at the data, for example, in December, at that point there was still more than 900,000 people who were unemployed and 1.5 million people collecting JobKeeper. So there's still a lot of people out of work and it's going to take some time to really soak up the spare capacity that is still in the economy. And we know about the damaging long-term effects of prolonged periods of unemployment both for individuals and for the broader economy. So we really do need to be careful that we get the balance right here and we avoid withdrawing fiscal support too quickly. For example, you know, we've seen the problems that can be created when governments return to austerity too quickly. We saw that in the past, uh, particularly in the recent uh, global financial crisis experience overseas. Um, and we know that there are really damaging economic effects of prolonged periods of below potential growth and the risk of what Economists call hysteresis effects in labour markets where the impact uh, on unemployment persists well beyond the actual crisis period itself. And we're seeing in the US at the moment that policymakers over there have really taken these, these past lessons to heart and they're now pushing on the fiscal lever really hard to provide support for their economy in a huge, huge volume of support really in order to strengthen and accelerate the recovery. And the way they see it over there uh, the biggest risk is actually not providing enough support rather than providing too much. So if you flip that back to Australia, yes, our recovery is underway, but we've still got a lot of spare capacity and a long way to go before we reach full employment. So I think it would be a mistake to refocus on balancing the federal budget too soon. So, Jared, that's my perspective on the long-term lens. How do you see the importance of fiscal policy in the recovery phase beyond March? Well, I certainly agree that that some form of fiscal support will be critical beyond the end of JobKeeper and, and JobSeeker. And uh, we've seen, you know, if, if 2020 taught us anything, it's that these things will evolve and, and change and will need to be tweaked uh, and policy makers need to be alive to that. I think it's important to remember that there's still a lot of fiscal policy support measures that are in place and, and potentially could be tweaked as necessary. Um, so we do have a JobMaker hiring credit, for example, uh, in place. We also have investment tax credits. And we've also got a large public infrastructure program uh, between the Commonwealth investment and also the state government investment in infrastructure. Uh, and added to that, the opportunity which uh, CEDA's work last year highlighted for more investment in social infrastructure, so health, aged care, childcare, uh, things which would have uh, a bigger impact on jobs perhaps than some of the infrastructure programs in place. Um, there's also the question of what will happen with uh, savings. So um, household savings ratio has actually climbed up to 20% uh, compared to 5% before the, before the pandemic. Uh, and we can see in Treasury data that um, at the beginning of this year, households and businesses had an extra $200 billion in savings than they did a year ago. Uh, so obviously these, these savings uh, and what happens to them will play a big part in where the economy heads uh, in the next little while. And it could be that um, people don't have the confidence to spend uh, as much based on um, containing the virus and the vaccine rollout, how well that goes. Uh, and it could come down also to how much people want to spend on consumption 
uh, versus paying down debt, which is something that people have been a lot more focused on in the last uh, 12 months. So I think the debate really now needs to shift to more specific targeted support. So looking at the sectors or regions suffering uh, most from lockdowns and international border closures. So obviously tourism and education exports uh, are right at the top of the list there. There's also been, I think, several ideas floated and, and under active consideration around how you do have that more targeted support. So providing businesses with income contingent loans uh, is something that's being considered. Now, I do think there's some, there's some tricky kind of issues to consider in how you design that right um, and making sure that you give viable businesses a few years to recover um, rather than just kind of prolonging the life of unviable businesses. Um, we've also seen overseas some ideas like giving uh, grants for um, companies to invest more in equipment and IT um, so that, for example, in the case of a tourism business, uh, they might have some new technology that improves the experience uh, and convenience for tourists when uh, they can come back and travel. Um, we might see a more targeted version of JobKeeper. Um, who knows what might what might happen there, whether whether that continues in a in a much narrower form. And I guess the final one that that everyone is talking about is um, lifting the adequacy of unemployment benefits. So pre-COVID, there was uh, a strong consensus among economists and others in the community that the rate of uh, job seeker was simply too low. Um, so there is that opportunity to lift the rate there. And then others are, are floating, I guess, more structural kind of changes around that, including having some type of unemployment insurance scheme. So where you perhaps get 80% of your wage for the first six months of unemployment um, before that tapers down to a, to a lower level. So some, some pretty interesting ideas that are being floated, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I quite like that one, that last one in particular. And as you say, the unemployment benefit is definitely one area that really does need to be addressed. You know, we and others have been calling for a permanent increase to the rate of job seeker for some time now. And that's really important on two levels. Firstly, of course, there's a moral imperative to increase job seeker to a level that's sufficient to cover basic costs of living. And it's important to recognise that basic costs of living also include the basic requirements of digital connectivity so that people have the tools that they need to find work and also to participate in digital education. And secondly, raising the rate makes sense from an economic recovery perspective as well. You know, we know that low income earners have a higher marginal propensity to consume. So that means that they spend more of every additional dollar that they earn compared to higher income earners. So overall, raising the job seeker rate really makes good policy sense, doesn't it? And it's uh, been heartening to hear reports lately suggesting that the government is looking into options for streamlining welfare payments and also thinking about options for, for a permanent increase to that job seeker rate. Well, absolutely. And we will be keeping our eyes on uh, further announcements and developments on that front. Thanks a lot for joining us on the pod, Melissa. Um, that's CEDA's Senior Economist, Melissa Wilson, and I'm CEDA's Chief Economist, Jared Ball. Thanks for listening in. And if you want to hear more CEDA conversations on policy solutions for the greater good, you can subscribe using your favourite podcasting app. Rating our show helps others find them too. So thanks for doing that. <laughs>